I should have been better at taking care of myself. I should have been better at being honest about who I was. Uh, not being honest about who I am was part of the whole process of me becoming really unwell. I learned a lot. I learned that I hid the most important parts of myself behind big walls and big dreams. But luckily I built a mental fitness tracking system to help myself get through that. That actually works. Welcome to Vulnerable, the Founders Mental Health Podcast, powered by Founders Taboo. I'm your host, James Roycroft Davis, and I'm going to sit down with founders and investors from all over the startup ecosystem to get vulnerable so we can finally break down the stigma attached to talking about your mental health as a founder. Whilst I've got your attention, this podcast does not grow without our amazing listeners subscribing to it. So please press the subscribe button now. It takes five seconds and I promise you we will not disappoint with what's coming up next. This next episode with this guest is pretty wild. Jana Dowling is a female founder with bipolar disorder. She is one of the most unconventional founders I've literally ever met. And we clicked as soon as we met. Jana has done things the hard way. She didn't go to uni. She entered entrepreneurship late after a career in TV production. But now approaching 40, she's building Arkea, a mental health tracking app born out of her experience of being on 24-hour suicide watch after having a severe depressive episode. And this story is how she built it. From virtually nothing to now having thousands of users tracking their mental health habits. I've done a lot of podcast episodes now, and I know when I'm recording something in the moment that that's going to help so many people out there realize that whatever they are going through, it can be done through sheer will, through sheer grit, and sheer determination. So, welcome to Vulnerable, Jana Dowling. Um, where should we start with this? I don't know. It's always good to start at the beginning, I guess. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, I could do a Stephen Bartlett and go, oh, I want to get to know you as a baby. I don't remember being a baby. I don't think I could give you that much context. Um, I guess I guess I could start with, I, I, I have to say, as an entrepreneur, I think your personality has a lot to do with where you get. Go um, and I think I was lucky as a kid to be, like, encouraged to speak up and debate. Um, my parents used to sit us, I'm one of five kids, and they used to sit us around the table and my dad would just throw a topic in and really? we'd all just have to debate it. doesn't matter if you believed your topic or not, your job was to try and convince the other person who had an opinion that their opinion was wrong. <laughs> and we were doing that from little kids. Um, your dad sounds great. He's a legend. He's wow. a legend. But yeah, so I think your personality has a lot to do with it and I was um, brought up to to do that and I think that's that's worked out very well for me as an entrepreneur mm. um realize I didn't even introduce your name I will record <laughs> an intro to this so people will uh, sorry they can, yeah. they can we can put it as a puzzle no I know I, as you can tell I'm quite like improv just go in and see where the yeah. see where it fucking goes um is it Jana or Jana it's Jana 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 yeah darling yeah welcome Thank you. To Vulnerable Podcast. Thank you. You have a fucking mental story. <laughs> yes, I do. So actually, I am going to start from the start. Yes, please We've do. just spoken about personalities. And whether we edit this in or not, I don't know. What were you like growing up? Um, Intensely was... argumentative or like kind of no, like... I'm really? a super people pleaser. Really? But I always wanted to be the star of the show. There was a conflict there really? <laughs> right from the get-go. I always wanted, I always felt like, and I think this is, a, is maybe a bit of an ego mm. or an arrogant thing, I always felt like I wanted to achieve a lot. Mm. I always felt like I was more than I was being. 
which is a weird feeling to have as a kid. I always wanted to be more than I was. Did it cause you pain? Yeah. 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 And it made me do things that caused me pain in a good way, in the sense that it made me push myself out of my comfort zone and go, well, if if I want to be that person that's standing up there performing or I want to be that person that's really good at gym or whatever, you know, those stars, the stars at school, mm. the people who are just so good at something. If you want to be that person, you have to get up and do it and you have to try. And, <laughs> and at some point, <laughs> you do have to have self-reflection and realize, okay, I'm never going to, I don't have that natural talent. But it never stopped me trying. You know, I always went. And then you feel really uncomfortable. Mm. You know, when you try and do something you're not good at, you feel really uncomfortable. And I was terrible at school. I was the kid that tried really, really hard, but got a D or an E in a school where everyone was super smart. That's, that resonates a lot. Even that, yeah, no, that re- I did. I, where did I try? <laughs> my school reports would say no, and my mum would say no, so I'm going to go no. I'd like to say I tried, but it resonates with me completely. School just didn't work for me. In the call we had this morning, I said to you, I'm just a complete weirdo. <laughs> that was such a good introduction. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, my name's James. I'm a complete weirdo. I, I, I am. I'm very, very different. We are very, very different as mm. human beings. Um, I resonate with that, though. I'm a complete weirdo. I can t- I can tell that from five minutes with you, yeah. <laughs> it's very reassuring. <laughs> that, Amongst our people. <laughs> uh, yeah, there's, there's some f- absolute freaks in the tribe. Uh, and my, my guest earlier... Costa, um, who will either come before or after this episode in mm. terms of running order. So people might be like, who the fuck is that? <laughs> um, he is just bonkers. He builds, and he won't mind me saying this because I told him he was bonkers earlier. Um, and we're, we're lucky that we know each other quite well. But he, he builds systems and mental models for everything. Oh. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I was like, oh, this is my, this is like my hell on earth. But he is extraordinary. Is he? Yeah. Oh, I'm looking forward to that episode. But sat in the bath, a cold bath <laughs> with a knife, about to take his own life. Ugh. And as I know, you've been there. Mm-hmm. Not quite the bath situation with a knife. I don't know, actually. But you've been to that place. Yeah, yeah. It's honestly, it's awful when I hear other people and how they've experienced it because I know how bad it is Mm. and I just feel so deeply for them. Mm. Um, But also that was, I guess, the beginning of the rest of my life, as cheesy as that sounds. Doesn't sound cheesy. Um, Makes sense. It really did. I've had, do you know what? I am a little weirdo. I've had a really, really privileged life mm. where I've I've had, you know, everything I need around me, you know, in terms of like support and help from people. And I went to a great school, even though I was bad at it. Um, and I think hitting where I hit with so much privilege is also a really tricky thing to get your head around you know as someone you know to let myself have get have allowed myself to get to that point without pulling myself up with all the support and help I had around me um it's quite a sort of I don't know how to say but like when when I was reflecting on myself and the realization that the responsibility that I had shirked for so long and you know that comes with privilege when you're privileged you do shirk responsibility because you don't need to take it for everything and you take things for granted um and I learned so much through that experience and I learned a lot about myself I learned a lot about the stuff that I like I should have been better at I should have been better at taking care of myself I should have been better at being honest about who I was Mm. Uh, not being honest about who I am was part of the whole process of me becoming really unwell. Interesting. Let's go through the process. <laughs> <laughs> if you're okay with that. Yes. Um, 
you're you've actually had a slightly unconventional journey into this world although that i don't think well there's some conventional routes into this world but into being an entrepreneur um how did you deep dive into this um by accident it was it was it was just through so i so when i was ill um, I spent five weeks under 24-hour watch as a high-risk suicide patient, so I was really, really unwell. Um, I was diagnosed with bipolar disorder, which actually, looking back in my life, makes a lot of sense because <laughs> I worked project work in telly. Um, so I'd make TV shows and I did London Fashion Week's newspaper as well. So I was a managing editor and a, a production manager and everything was in projects. So I would do like three months of full-on high-octane work. And then I would just, you know, sidle away and sleep for a month. And then I would do the same thing again. Actually worked very... I ended up doing a job that worked around the mental health diagnosis that I have, which is so weird. I literally found something I could exist in. Um, Did you show signs of bipolar at school? When did it begin to rear its ugly head? No, I, I, it's forever. Really? So I remember my mum, now we know, my mum and I talk about when I was little. And she said, actually one of my mum's friends said to, to me that my mum used to cry. She'd call her and cry and just say, she's so sad and I don't know why and I don't know what to do. And I was five. Wow. And I remember, I remember not being able to sleep and having really bad intrusive thoughts, probably when I was about like eight or nine, really terrible things. I was thinking these terrible things very, very late at night. And I um, I taught myself to unthink them so they would happen. And then when these scary thoughts were coming into my head, I saw an advert of the Care Bears and they were sliding down a rainbow. And we weren't allowed to watch telly. We didn't watch telly. We watched a movie once a week on a Friday night. Um, so we weren't allowed to buy anything that had brands on it and stuff like that. Um, and these Care Bears sliding down this rainbow. And I used to, when those intrusive thoughts were coming into my head, just go over and over and over the image of these Care Bears sliding down the rainbow that I'd seen. And it would help me sleep. And weirdly, I still use that image now. Wow. <laughs> I mean, I wish I was cooler than the Care Bears, but, you know. No, it's okay. <laughs> so you so you've this this is clear well, it's from birth really mm -hmm. wow it's extraordinary mm -hmm. but we didn't know no, about that course. you know no, and no. it just wasn't it was just who i was it was my personality you I were guess. just sad yeah i was just sad just, or really happy really and performing that's so weird mm. um so when i was diagnosed it all kind of made sense. Yeah. And but when were you diagnosed? So when I had my, so about five years ago, when I had my severe depressive episode, that's when I got diagnosed right. with bipolar disorder. I had been previously diagnosed with depression just, I think it was about eight weeks before. And I got put on um, an antidepressant. And I, like anyone... I'm on sertraline. Are you? Yeah, it's changed my life, actually. Yeah, I'm on Isotel... Well, I only take Isotelopram. Um, for six months of the year because it's my bipolar cyclical seasonal um, wow. but yeah I took these antidepressants um, while I was at work and I couldn't focus so I took them for a week and a half and I honestly thought I was going to get fired mm. chucked them in the bin and then six weeks later had this episode and actually antidepressants in bipolar people can cause spark an episode Really? so it all kind of came together in a big mess um, and I got diagnosed and then got medication, started getting better and I started reflecting on my life. Like I said, I started to go, mm, crap, Jana, like this is, who are you and what are you doing, you know? And um, I once I'd got over that part of the only thing I could think of was I didn't want to be here, I wasn't worth anything and it, it was better that I wasn't here kind of stuff. Once I moved past that and realized that that wasn't the answer, mm. um, I started to see the impact of what happened to me on everyone. You know, my friends, my family, everyone was 
impacted really negatively by what had happened to me. It wasn't just about me. Um, and so being a little worker bee that I am and having the upbringing that I had, I just kind of went, well, you know, I got to take my recovery on like a job because I can't work and I'm being supported by other people and helped by other people. And what I owe them is the maximum effort to get better. Um, and then I don't feel so bad about them helping me if I'm putting the maximum effort in. Um, and doctors said to me, you know, keep a mood diary, keep a food diary, keep a sleep diary. And I was keeping all these diaries. I'm dyslexic and words on papers and I just couldn't make sense of it. So I built out a tracking system to help myself. Mm. Um, I built it, it worked, and then I went on to build a social enterprise and then We'll get on to that in a minute, by exactly. the way. Don't worry. I'm, so, I haven't forgotten. Yeah. No, so that's kind of how I fell into being an entrepreneur. Makes sense. You said something there. You said... Um, it was very interesting. No, you, you said, uh, I learned a lot about myself. That's mm -hmm. where I forced myself to learn. I, I think it's... Learning about yourself is one of the most painful things you can ever do. Because I, sp I spent 20 years of my life acting like I was somebody else. Mm -hmm. Until I had a breakdown well documented on LinkedIn for my many fans um, and I had this suicidal episode after my last startup I built it with my mum mm. and I really she, she she will have heard me say in enough podcast episodes that was the worst thing I ever did because it is um, I haven't actually told her that to her face I probably should but it was the worst thing I ever did because we're so similar and actually now what I've learned about co-founders going into business with somebody, partnering with somebody, is they need to compliment you in ways which you don't compliment yourself. I am as big a picture as it gets. And that's okay. It used to cause me a lot of pain because I was like, fuck, am I actually intelligent or not? <laughs> um, but I'm as big picture as it gets. And that's what I'm good at. <laughs> like, I'm good at telling a story. And I'm really fucking good at selling. Um, and I could probably send, sell sand to the Arabs. But it's it, it meant that me and my mum just didn't work. And we were doing this for two years. It's, it's so tough when it takes up so much of your life and it takes up your personal life as well. I think that's, that's the sacrifice you make. Um, mm. I definitely regret some of, well, I regret a lot of the decisions I made in the first two years of, of building RKO. Um, and some of them impacted my family because my family had to lend me money at, at a certain point, which I still haven't paid them back, which I feel every day of my life. <laughs> um, and these were decisions I will never make again. Mm. I will never make decisions the way I used to but you know you've got to start somewhere and I was so green I didn't have any experience I was I'm like you we would be awful with a business together because we'd both be going this is how we sell it and not paying attention to exactly. you know forecasts and details and team building although you do pay attention to it but it's that sort of like nitty-gritty detail that you need someone to be bang on yeah um that I don't do either Although I've had to learn how to do it. On a, on a side note, actually, the conversation I just had with Costa, he has built a um, pitch deck about him, himself. Uh, I can send it to you, actually. It's, it's really, freely available. I'll get him to send it to me. And we went through it on, on the episode, actually, because it was super interesting, going mm -hmm. into his, um, his strengths, weaknesses, and um, his beliefs. Basically an operating manual. You should do that for yourself. I'm going to do I'm going to do it. I say I say it all the time. I'll do it this week. I fucking never do. But I'll I'll spend some time this weekend doing it. I think maybe mm. on Sunday. I've got we're exhibiting at the UK Investor Show on cool. Saturday. Uh, it is kind of cool, but I mean, if you've got fifteen hundred quid, you can do it. So I mean, yeah. But it, we've one my our main investor owns the UK Investor Show, so felt a bit awkward not exhibiting. Um. I've digressed massively here. I want to know what you <laughs> learned about yourself through um, that process. I learned a lot. I learned that, you know, I hid the most important parts of myself 
behind big walls and big dreams and actually and what are they i guess that i'm i'm incredibly sensitive mm. um you know i don't like using the term oversensitive because it means that it sounds negative but like i'm a highly sensitive person you're an introvert yeah i but i do love performing so it's a weird that doesn't mean you're not an introvert because mm. i'm the same i love performing like yeah i have very happily go on camera and yeah. be like, psych myself up for performance. But I get really nervous. Yeah. But then I'll do it and I'll be exhausted. Yes. Because I give all of my energy to being that extroverted person, mm -hmm. that larger in life personality. And then once it's done, all I want to do is sleep for a week. Yeah, I'm there. That's mm. me too. But I guess I learned that. I also learned that I have been incredibly selfish and really, I mean, very spoiled in a way that, I didn't realize um and that comes from privilege you know I thought I worked hard I thought and I did work hard like I'm the kind of person my dad taught me work 10 times harder than the person sat next to you, you always have a job so I was always that person that would take on more and more and more obviously competence gets punished in when you're working for other people sometimes um but I think you know still like to really truly understand when you are privileged to really feel and see how privileged you are, it is a rude awakening and everyone should experience it, just not in the way I experienced it. And actually, I guess what happened to me wasn't the reason I experienced it, it was because of the people I subsequently ended up working with. Um, and when you're at hospital, in a hospital, uh, talking about mental health or being surrounded by other people who have mental health issues, you know that it's not. Um, it, it it's so every single person can experience them. Um, but I have to say, I've I've had so much privilege in my life, and I think taking for granted, you know, all the things that I had that were to me just normal. Um, I guess, yeah. So I learned some pretty tough things about myself. I haven't been on 24-hour... Uh, I haven't been in hospital on 24-hour watch. I've been at home in my flat on 24-hour watch. Yeah. In hindsight. Um, what's that experience like? Well, I wasn't in hospital either. Um, because right. I luckily, and again, this goes back to the privilege, I had a friend of mine who just got back from traveling um, and just came and stayed with me. So I got to leave the hospital. So the hospital will... I wouldn't say that's privilege, I say that's luck. No, there are some people that don't have... I, I, I think having friends that are around, whether this person had come back from traveling or not, I think there probably would have been someone else. Uh, and I've worked with a lot of people who don't have anyone else to take care of them um so i guess i mean privilege in that sense that there were enough people in my life that someone would have come and stayed right. with me so i wasn't in hospital i have worked with and stayed with seen people who've been in patients and it is it is so tough it's so so tough and it's you know i wouldn't have have recovered as quickly as I did. I wouldn't have had the space for my brain to do what it needed to do. I wouldn't have been encouraged to do the things that I was doing had I been an inpatient. Mm. Um, and I think that that's a really important distinction. And again, that's why I always go back to my privilege. You know, I had the ability to not go through that process in that way and being an inpatient. And I know people who went through the same thing I did and they went through being an inpatient. Um, and our experiences were incredibly different. Interesting. As you alluded to earlier, the story of our care mm -hmm. is very interesting. Um, how the fuck did that come around? <laughs> so when I was recovering, um, I, yeah, I basically turned it into a job because I had to have something that I could focus on. And I listened to everyone and what they were telling me to do, and I just did it. Um, but what I found was that there was too many different things that I was trying to do. So I was trying to track, write a mood diary, and then I was trying to keep a food diary and a sleep diary and an exercise diary and all these different things. And I couldn't really make sense of any of it. 
And I couldn't see how it was all connecting to each other. And so I just decided to build my own system. So I gridded out, I said this before, on an A4 piece of paper with a ruler and a pencil. I mean, it's so beta. It's just... I wouldn't even give yourself that credit. It's, it's like pre-alpha, isn't it's it? It's pre-alpha. That's the right words. I'm so bad with the te- technology speak because I'm not a tech person at all now. But anyway, <laughs> so I gridded out um, 31 days on a piece of paper and I had all of my symptoms, all of my behaviors, my daily choices, my medications, everything I was doing was written down on like horizontally. Is that the X axis? Um and then I numbered everything zero to three on how it was, the score it was. And over a period of a month, I could see patterns in my data. Like I, you can visually see patterns with zero, one, two, like, and three. What were the patterns? So I could see repeatedly that if I had a cup of caffeinated coffee, two days later, I would start to present manic behaviors. And doctors told me that was impossible because caffeine goes through your body in 24 hours. So if it was going to stimulate a manic behavior... Well, it goes through your body in 16 hours. Is it 16? It's got an eight-hour half-life, which is why I stopped drinking coffee after 10. Yeah, I can't. Sorry, 10 a.m. <laughs> yeah, fair. Mm. So, um, well, the doc- yeah, well, there you go. I believe the doctor, and he said just in a day, because he was obviously not being that specific. But uh, he said it couldn't, it couldn't possibly be the caffeine. But what my data showed me is that actually, of course it wasn't the caffeine, but when I drank the coffee, I then wouldn't eat as much and I would drink more coffee and I wouldn't sleep as much. And without eating properly and sleeping properly over two days, I would then start presenting manic behavior. And when you say presenting manic behavior, an example of that would be what? Oh, being manic's really fun sometimes. It's really? terrible, yeah. Really? It's the one thing I kind of, I have to keep myself under it. Um, so manic behavior... I say really, I was like this. I did Alistair Campbell's, I launched Al- Alistair Campbell's book with him. Mm-hmm. His last one on depression. Because he asked, he came on my last podcast, The Rut, and he asked me to, which was great, because he thought I was good enough. Um, you are. <laughs> thank you. I know. I am enough. Um, and then... I did the event. I was on this massive high. I was literally running around Sainsbury's. And then mm-hmm. straight into floor. Sleep was in a real episode. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's what it is. So you can become very impulsive, make uh, decisions very quickly. Uh, people spend a lot of money uh, when they're manic. Um, you can also... your I guess your judgment is impaired. So you will seek fun and short-term gains as opposed to taking the bigger picture into mm. consideration. So that was just one thing I learned. Um, there were so many things. There were so many things that I was doing wrong, you know, that was, wasn't was helping me. So drinking coffee was one of them. Um, not having a regular routine, so not sleeping the same amount. Uh, or getting enough sleep, or getting too much sleep was a problem. Really? Man, I love sleeping. Mm. I love sleeping. Uh, so I just learned about myself. I learned about the decisions I was making um, and how they impacted mm, mm-hmm. my everyday life. Sure. Um, and started choosing the right ones based on the data. Sure. So we've you've gathered the data, you took it to the doctor, presenting those manic um, symptoms post basically a compounding different areas of life compounding one Mm -hmm. after the other two days later bosh here you go Mm -hmm. um what did you do after that um well i just kept doing it my doctor was like well this is great that you're doing this brilliant well done um and then (laughs) doing my job for me yeah exactly and then i kept doing it um and i was back in work in three months um in a senior position um and i got help getting that job actually a mate of mine just kind of went it's fine come work with me and she helped me sort of adjust um and then I I reflected and went you know maybe this can help other people maybe this tracking system can be useful for other people who maybe don't have all the things I had when I was going through that experience and that's when I set up the social enterprise okay the social enterprise was called the 888 collective 
the 888 collective. Yeah, I should never be allowed to name companies. It's really hard to say it out loud. Why was that? Um, Why the name? Because 888 in some cultures um, signifies rebirth and redemption. Mm. Uh, And it's also, uh, yeah, very lucky numbers. So I found all of those were quite good. Um, And yeah, what I wanted to do was help people with mental health issues get back into work. Yeah. And that's uh, what I did. We sold tea and toasties out of a shed in East London. Um, And we took those tea and toasties into all the different WeWorks. And I taught everyone that was working with me the tracking system. I basically just empowered them as well. Um, And people left me to to go and get jobs. Um, And then the NHS started sending people to me. Job centres started sending people to me. And then uh, I built it into a course so I could help more people. And at the end of those courses, we would take over East London restaurants and pre-sell tickets. And everyone that finished my course would get their first paid shift back in work. Some was the first time anyone had given the opportunity to have a paid job. Um, And we did really well with it. And then people who didn't have mental health issues started using the tracking system. And they kept saying, Jana, you need to like, can you just get this into into my phone <laughs> because I don't want to have it on a on a piece of paper. Um, and they really liked using it, not because, basically because it wasn't really about a diagnosis. It was all tailored. You choose what you track. You choose the behaviors. You choose the problems that you want to track. It's not a round diagnosed issue that already exists that everyone knows about. Um, so it just didn't have the same kind of stigma and also people who don't self-identify with ma- mental health issues but might have them were like this is this is my thing you know this is how I can I can help myself and so then that's how I started building out Arkeo. Um and I don't have a business degree I don't have anything I never worked in tech before so it was a real it was a journey it was a journey a, a massive learning curve um but yeah I went out raised money built an alpha version how was that intense and also really surprising how many people wanted support to support me really yeah there was so many people that could see my passion could see my idea could see my bigger picture but also could see that I had no idea what I was doing and instead of going you have no idea what you're doing you're never going to get there they bothered to sit me down and explain to me like how to work out evaluation how what you needed to do to protect things like the process of building an app, you know, I had no idea. It's so hard. It's impossible. It's not impossible. It is really hard. It's really hard. Yeah. It's really hard. Um, did you raise money? Yes, I raised 130k. Which is mega anyway. Yeah. It's not bad for someone that doesn't know what they were doing. Most people, <laughs> I think you need to give yourself way more credit because most people don't even raise money. Most people try and fail. Yeah, I don't. I, I never thought about that. I mean, I think I was just a bull in a china shop. And actually, if I knew what I know now about building tech, I probably wouldn't have tried. Okay, go on. Expand on that. Well, do you know what? I wish I was building tech now because I know what I know. But, but that's the cheat code. Yeah. That's like everybody wishes what they knew. Like we've made so many fucking mistakes with Luna. I've just spent an hour with Costa, almost two hours actually, talking about mistakes. I love mistakes though. Yeah, but we, I won't be making those again. No. Well, they're only good mistakes if you don't make yeah. them again. What mistakes did you make? Oh my gosh. Um, oh my gosh, so and this many. This is going to be so interesting for first-time founders listening, and I know there's going to be a hell of a lot. So my decks at the beginning were just so embarrassing. <laughs> I look back and I'm like, oh my God. I mean, there there is a way to build a deck. There is a formula. You should stick to it. Don't go off piste. No. Don't don't think you know what you're doing. Or think you know better. Yes, because you don't. No. I definitely did. And I definitely didn't mm. know better. Um I think 
Do you know what one of the great learnings was, and I probably need to change this in in how I speak about myself now, was I was so open and honest about not knowing what I was doing. People helped me. I think one of the things you have to do as an entrepreneur is always kind of pretend that you know what you're doing or pretend that you're doing better than you are. And I think people found it endearing that I just walk up to them and be like, listen, I don't know what I'm doing. I want to do this. Can you help me? Mm. See, I don't know. I, I think there's an element of it, look knowing what you knowing, you know you know what you're doing. Mm-hmm. Um, is an advantage, of course, but it's also v- the most important thing is to be humble enough to not know what you're doing, and I think that's where entrepreneurs coming into the market now feel like they need to know it all and actually the most vulnerable and the best founders haven't got a fucking clue what they're doing they are just humble enough to know they don't know and therefore they can bring in people around them like i don't know what i'm doing day to day with luna what i do know i'm very good at is working out how I can very quickly get up to a point where, as a generalist, I can either hand off the work to somebody who's far better, or I learn quickly. Yeah. And that and that is the big thing. Yes, there's going to be founders out there who know what they're doing. Great. Most founders don't, and they'll be lying to say if they do. And I also think investors know that. That's the thing is, and I think, I think, I mean, I do think we have a tendency. I definitely do. I mean, I have this thing where I'm 39. and You I, do not look 39, by the way. Well, thank you so I much. I thought you, Bob, being the creepy, you look fantastic. <laughs> you do not look 39. Thank you. Um, but I am, and I'm very proud of it. Um, but I feel like an old entrepreneur. Really? You know? All like you see all these people doing these things, and actually, most of the press covers young people because it's mm. incredibly impressive. But actually, you know, I'm almost a 40 year old woman and I'm doing it. Um, and it's kind of like, dude, where are all the people like me? They are out there, um, but you don't see many of them, and it's not cool, you know, it's not cool to be old and <laughs> trying to start a business. You're 39, you aren't. Well, I know, but I mean old as in the narrative right now is mm. everyone thinks that by the time you're 27, if you've not made it... You're toast. You're, yeah, exactly. And this, that, like we were saying earlier, the Forbes 30 under 30. Mm-hmm. Fuck off. <laughs> I didn't make it this year. Uh, <laughs> I'm, I mean, I've, <laughs> I won't even make 40s un- 40 Forbes under 40. Do you know what would be hilarious? Like, I'm the type of person who will slag off Forbes 30 under 30 and... <laughs> In two years' time, they'll get in contact and be like, do you want to be featured? And I'll be like, yeah, go on. Hell yeah. yeah. <laughs> be like, here's my yeah. really nice and here's headshot. My, here's my LinkedIn announcement. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, that's the other thing, though. I have to say, as an entrepreneur, you have to take every single opportunity that is put in front of your face. It doesn't matter anything. Just take it, move forward. Take it, move forward. Don't stop. Don't think too much about things move on your instinct that's what I've done a lot is instinct <laughs> although my instinct hasn't always been right um I have done that and I think constantly moving and adjusting the way you think and what you think to say is this going to get me nearer my end goal or not that's the only question you should be asking yourself so this whole like Forbes 30 under 30 actually if it presented its, itself it would get you further to your goal Correct. so you'd exactly. go yep I'm in mm. and your your personal like I don't know what it's called. It's not morals because morals are good. But what's your personal kind of preferences Mm. for things actually have to be taken out because it's business. Mm. It's not about your personal opinion. Mm. Let's get back onto your company. I want to know the horror stories. Like this, this, the horror stories. No, no, no. Let's not go with the horror story. As you know, this podcast is about getting blah, 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 right? Yes. Um... We want to show that founders all around the world and investors can sit there and talk about the shit mm. and not feel like they can't present themselves to the world. They won't be able to raise money. 
They won't be able to build a team or a business or a personal brand or whatever it might be. Um, how has your mental health been impacted through building Archaea? Because you went from being under 24-7 suicide watch to building this kind of, I talked earlier about operating manual, kind of this operating manual for tracking your life to improve your mental health to building out the product raising money building out the product to do that does that not have an impact on your mental health yeah huge huge um but luckily i built a mental fitness tracking system to help myself get through that that actually works which is really funny because people always say to me how did you do it and i'm like um the product i built works uh, so basically, I use my tracking system and I'm constantly changing my behaviors based on what's happening in my life at that period of time. And I'm con it's constant management in the same way you do with your physical fitness. But for me, you know, it doesn't mean that constant management means you're constantly adjusting so that you can cope. It doesn't mean that you don't feel, uh, I can't cope. You still feel those things. You just take the right... Uh, actions to get yourself out of that position as quickly as possible. So, I mean, for me, we raised a million with a, a brand new VC um, in 2019. We took on contractors. We accelerated our work. The first charge payment didn't come in. They said it was late. It was coming in. I mean, and I'm not saying this is like random stuff. This is term sheet, shareholders agreements, everything signed, tranche payment, delivery signed, every contract signed you could possibly think of. So contractors came on board based on the contract that we signed. Um, and it never came in. So I went from signing a million and taking our alpha version, using the code we'd already built on our alpha version, and then starting to build the beta on top which meant that the alpha didn't exist anymore. To, and having, having people working with me that I then couldn't pay, which I have to say is the worst feeling I've ever had. Being someone who, who I believed that that money was going to come in and it didn't, because I believed that a contract meant something and it doesn't. It only means something if you can financially fight it. <laughs> Where did that go, that fight? Because contractually, yes, they, there'll be no penalties or provisions really legally, but um, a new VC, they led a million dollar round or they just gave you the million? No, they, they, they gave me the million, but really? they didn't give it to me. Well, sorry, they... <laughs> they signed it. They signed it. They signed it, yeah. I won't um, let you name the VC because it's not fair. It's also not, it's not the most important part of the story. The no. most important part of the story is how hard it was mm. as a person to deal with all these people that you owed money to. Mm. And they need their money. They don't, they don't do it out of the kindness of their heart. They've got to send their kids to school. They've got to do things. They've got rent to pay. And that was all on my shoulders because of my decision. Mm. I will never, ever commission any work unless that money's in the bank. And I think that was the biggest mistake I made. And I got caught up in the excitement of it all. You know, signing a million is a huge thing. It's a huge thing. Um, and that's where I guess my... What was the aftermath of that like, though? It was uh, horrendous. So did they give a reason? Oh, there were many constant reasons really? and there was constant, I mean, there was a legal conversations that were happening. I, I stayed in them for about six months and I was like, I, I'm out. I can't even bother to have these conversations with you. It's a waste of my, my no. time and energy. Um, other people who were connected to the business kept speaking to them because they kept trying to get it so that it would work. And I was like, I don't want to work with these people. No. But the responsibility to others and letting other people down is just so painful. And people would say, oh, you just got to forget about it. And I'm like, I can't forget about these people. I care about them. They're really good people. Um, and luckily, I was able to speak to them and they all understood where I was coming from. No, Everyone knew that I was trying to do the right thing and that all my decisions were based on being thinking 
the right way. I just got it wrong. Um, so I came to really good agreements with everyone um, that I owed invoices to. And then I put in a big R&D tax claim for the, the tech we'd already built, got enough money back from that to finish the beta build so we could get it out to beta test it, beta test it. And then I raised again just to get enough money to get it out to market. And that's what I did. And now we're raising. It was brutal. Quite the story. <laughs> it's, I, honestly, I can't tell you how bad I felt. And actually, at home, so the reason I was able to survive this is because I have an incredible support system. So my partner, Liv, when I had no money, she was doing her ACAs, uh, working full time at one of the top fours. Um, and had to support us financially because I had no salary suddenly. Mm. Um, she supported me through feeling like, oh my, she supported me through listening to me say, oh my God, what am I going to do? You know, I hate this. I hate my life again. How have I got myself into mm. this situation? How long have you been together? Um, I, I think at that point, probably a year and a half. Right. Yeah. Um, and she just stood by me like and has um and i have to say that support again i would call that a privilege uh to have that in your life um and i think being a sole female founder without um without having live as my partner i i wouldn't be able to do this like it's it's bad enough trying to do it on your own but mm. without somebody backing you and believing in you you know what just having someone say listen you're brilliant I need people to tell me, I need her to tell me I'm brilliant sometimes because you feel so not brilliant, uh, especially when you make those mistakes and the big ones. Abby does it with me. Just this unwavering support that day to day, regardless of where I am, like my headspace, even though I'm on antidepressants, I think the antidepressants is actually, they've been, they've allowed me to clear the fog and then to make the decisions I need to make without having a brain fog. But every day is a struggle. Mm. And, but she, th that is, they're the unsung heroes of entrepreneurship, actually. When you look at like TechCrunch articles, XYZ has raised XYZ or XYZ has sold X and Y to B, to Z. And, it is the partners and it is the support networks around the entrepreneurs who are brilliantly gifted but work their fucking nuts off. Mm -hmm. And it's the partners that bear the biggest brunt. Absolutely. I think it's something that, you know how everyone always says, like, you've got to get a good work-life balance. Like, I can't do that. I can't it, ever do that. It's impossible to switch off. But what I can do is make sure that I properly love Liv and that she feels properly loved and that she feels like she's really important to me. Um, and that when that time comes where I have to go into full-on work mode and I can't pay attention, I'm aware that I'm not paying attention to her. I mean, it gets to the point sometimes, and especially if I ever experience mania, I put post-it notes around my house saying, tell Liv you love her, like say thank you to live for dinner like I'll put them around so that I remember to do it because I have to do that to make sure that I'm making the right amount of effort back especially when I get so consumed by building the business mm. and sometimes you need to let it consume you so that you can power through to the next space but neglecting the people around you that love you is like it's a terrible mistake I think we're you, you've got a dog as well. I think my dogs give me that ability to do that because at the end of the day, they need two walks. Yeah. <laughs> and whatever happens, they need to go out for a poo. Mm -hmm. And I don't, but they they are the people that actually, they're common people. They are the... I do, my baby. <laughs> they are, they're just amazing. They're, they're the, those are the type of things that gives you a real like shake every day it's like okay if you're going to do anything for two hours a day what your dog yeah and you were talking about putting your phone on silent or, or not even taking it i do that as well don't even take it yeah but sometimes but 
I have to take it because Liv makes me take it in case I need. She needs to contact me and get really? get me to bring some milk back or something. Oh, but I don't turn it on yet. I don't. I don't look at it. I just walk and I look at the sky and I look at what's going on around me and I play with Grafton, my dog, and we have a great time. Why is your dog named that? Um, because I live on that street. <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah. I named my dog after the street we live on. That's rogue. Yeah. Why? I don't know. This is really this is really weird. Um, did you ever see a YouTube video of a really posh man running across Richmond shouting Fenton at his dog? Yes. Yeah. Well, Grafton is our Stafford. My partner lives from Stafford, so she says Grafton instead of Grafton. Right. And so that was our our um, our joke, a- our in joke of. I, I don't. I never want to be running across Richmond Park shouting often. <laughs> after, no. but yeah, that's where it came from. That's fantastic. <laughs> I'm so glad I asked that. Actually, <laughs> insider info. Um, I love this question because it's so fascinating. What's your relationship like with your ego? It's strict. I really strict with it. Because it's something that can take you outside of yourself and outside of productivity and outside of your uh, purpose. Um, But you definitely need a bit of it. You need some of it to take you through the moments where you doubt yourself. You need some of it to help you rise above shitty things people are saying. Um, And you need to have a little bit of self-inflation. Uh, I think is healthy. But I I think the most important thing is if you are building something because you're fulfilling a purpose and you're building something for other people, which if you're building a product should be for other people, you have to listen to them. And you do not know everything and you are not the best. Uh, and, you know, I think ego is is a really interesting thing. But I, everyone, anyone that says, well, I don't have an ego or I don't buy into my ego, it's just lying. Well, like, looks, yeah. you know, it's so easy to get sucked into your own, <laughs> your own, like, I don't know, hype. Um, I do struggle a little bit with imposter syndrome. Mm. Um, and I do have a bad habit of putting myself down, which I have to try and stop. So I have to actively try and stop that. But, um, do you do it in a self-deprecating way, which then leads into actually, or is it just your general kind of internal, external monologue? You catch yourself talking down about yourself and your abilities. I think I don't even. I'm trying to catch it, but I'm not even at that stage right now. I have people say to me, "Don't you don't say that. It's not accurate." Mm. You know, and it's not even like, a, it's not a compliment or anything like that. It's right. literally like what it's you said non, is not accurate. It's just an untruth. Yeah, it's not real. Um, and so I have to re I have to relearn that myself. I have to teach myself not to do that because I've taught myself to do that, obviously, at some point. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm really strict with my ego. Mm, very interesting. How And how does a imposter syndrome, how does that take hold? It's awful because I just... Somewhere in my bones, I know I can build and run a company Mm. and I know I can build Archaea. I know I can build a mental fitness brand. I know I can build it. But then if I'll have people say things to me like, well, you can't do it on your own or you can't do it and also have another job and all these things and they all creep in. And what happens is I manifest that as, well, I'm not going to be able to do that. And, and I'm not good enough. I'm not good enough. Because other people have done it. Mm. And so it's sort of, I've got to teach myself again, and it's all self-learning. you just got to che- teach yourself, and I've got to take responsibility and change it, change the way I think, change the way I speak, and actively do that so that I don't fall into not achieving what I know I can. I love that. You're a first-time founder. Yes, yeah. Yeah. Um. Take put yourself in uni student, first time founder shoes. Like, what advice would you give to somebody starting business for the first time? I would say, 
make sure you're passionate about what your solution is. Right. And then I guess it goes back to the problem and the problem you're solving. Mm. Like always solve a problem that needs to be solved and not just by you. So mm. make sure that there are other people. Like I'd built a social enterprise. There were lots of other people that needed what I'd built. And I proved that by doing that. Um, and I think it's really easy to have an idea and go, oh, this is so exciting, and sell it mm. to people if you're good at selling ideas to people, but not look at the reality of, actually, is this something I want to dedicate a year of my life to? Now, actually, sometimes it's good to dedicate a year of your life to something that's actually probably mm. not going to work out because if you didn't, you wouldn't learn all those lessons. Correct. Um, so it's a catch-22. But I would say, for me, I've sometimes made the mistake of moving too far away from what my product is actually going to do and right. stuck more on the mission and the vision. And actually, it, that doesn't work well for you later down the line. No. Because you need to build something that works um, and it's, it's helpful. So true. I was talking to Kostya about this earlier, how we've made some serious mistakes because we prioritized speed over quality and time. And for me, I wanted to get something out because I listened to the crap I see on Twitter and I listened to a lot of the shit I see on elsewhere. And also I listened to myself mm. and my ego and I said, look, get it out, build shit and break shit. Sometimes it's best not to do that. And it's cost us some time and it's cost mm. us some money. And luckily we've been able to catch it early enough. And I had to have a serious heart-to-heart -heart myself and say, you shouldn't have done that. Actually, you didn't need to set these ridiculous goal yes. that we had and get it out as quickly as possible. Because, to be honest with you, the quality was reduced. And A, that's not, we pay for it now. We're having to re re mm. rebuild a few parts of the back end, which is a pain in the ass. But also... I think we've paid for it in terms of team morale because mm. we've got we've got a good sized team now and I think people have felt a bit disheartened about chopping and changing some of the direction of the product slightly mm. when actually if I'd been more decisive at the start and Probably the problem is you do so much. I was doing so much. I was working for free. Everybody else was being paid, but I wasn't paying myself. And not that that's an excuse, but when you do so much, it's so difficult to zone in on what actually is the core set of principles that your product is going to work off mm -hmm. versus what is going to actually work and what is going to be of quality. And it's okay to not have a thousand users. It's okay to not have 10,000 users. It's quite yeah. okay to, as a milestone for your seed, have 500 users yeah. who fucking love your product. Yes, and they tell you about it so yeah. that you can learn how exactly. to build it better because you don't know how to make it better. No. The 500 people will be able to tell you. Um, the other thing for, for, for people in um, uni or students, um, I would say you don't have to build your product to prove that it's worth building. You know how you're like, I've got to build it into an app. I've got to build something. No, you don't. Just start it on a piece of paper and get a bunch of people to use it. That's what I did. And that's how you that's how you get ready for funding. So true. That's what we did. I yeah. raised the first kind of two rounds of funding on. We were halfway through the build of the MVP, but we had data to mm. back this up. We had very deep entrenched surveys we had very deep user research that pointed towards what we were building and we had users working with us like we didn't even we, we were on figma with them designing yeah but that's what you can do as a student like you yeah. also have access to all the stuff exactly. at uni you don't exactly. have to pay for it no sit and down with some people design it but like, your stu your peers are there you've got a market already it's at uni you know how hard it is to get surveys at unis done as an external company you have it all at your fingertips just do it and also that's the other thing i would say is just do it i had 
I have no experience. If anyone's at uni, they've got more experience than me because I didn't go to uni. So there is that thing of just get out there and do it and kind of bulldoze your way through it, you know. Actually, don't listen to me. Just do it. Like, don't listen to my advice. Go and do what you want to do. I think that's the thing is we sometimes feel like we need to ask people for advice and stuff. And it's like, well, no, you know, the beginning, just get up and do something and then ask for advice. With my last startup, I had five advisors. I was paralyzed Mm. with words (laughs) and advice. They were all fantastic people. But the reason why I built such a large advisory board Mm -hmm. was because I wasn't confident in my own ability. I thought I could mask my ability by have recruiting a top, top advisory team. In actual fact, I just didn't know what I was doing. Mm-hmm. There's nothing wrong with that, though. I didn't know what I was doing. I did exactly the same thing as mm. you. I've had this big advisory board. And all that happened, they were all really brilliant people, by the way. I'm not saying anything bad yes, about them. But all that happened with the time was I wasted their time. Because we'd sit around and talk about all these things that I was unable to execute. And actually, this is another thing. So as a founder, when that million pounds didn't come in, I was financially in debt personally. Uh, I had to pay all these people. So I had to go and get two full-time jobs to sort my life out and to sort the situation out. Um, And both of those jobs were in tech um, one was building out another startup called Bike Parking, which you can actually, motorbike and moped users can find parking on it all around the UK. Launched that in six months, went really well. Launched it so quickly because I'd done okay, <laughs> like made all the mistakes. And then the other job I have is working at Sweatcoin. Um, they Sweatcoin had 10 million downloads last week. Uh, we've got like 80 million, they're a huge, huge company. And actually people would be like, oh, you failed because I had to sort of stop um, and put a pause on things and go and get a full-time job. But no, actually, I didn't fail. I'm still raising now. We're still going to do it. It just didn't happen in the way I thought it would. But actually being at Sweatcoin and working at Sweatcoin, I've learned a huge amount um, that I would have had to learn by making mistakes that I would have ended up paying for. But actually, I haven't had to do that. I've, I've been able to have that inside track. Um, so I think if you're an entrepreneur, you don't have to do your job. Full, you don't have to do your business full time. You can have a job somewhere else. It doesn't mean you're not an entrepreneur. It doesn't mean your business isn't going to succeed. You know, I'm probably in the worst situation. I've got to do a full time job and I'm raising money <laughs> and I'm a sole founder. How do you manage that? I don't have children. I don't have really any commitments in my life above and beyond my partner Liv and Grafton. Um, and so it's it's actually not that hard because I work nine to five flexible hours because I actually work a lot in the US with partners in the US. Um, and then, so basically I have a pretty good CRM system for going out for funding what I do is between seven and nine, I do all my emails. And then at lunchtime, I reply. And then like in the evening, I'll also send out some emails and reply. Um, in the daytime, I'm on LinkedIn anyway, because I, I use it for sweat queen work. So I can quickly reply to people. Um, and I can book in meetings with people in the morning, in the evening or at lunchtime. Now, lots of people would be like, oh God, you're never going to be able to do that because investors want to speak to you when they want to speak to you. And actually, investors want to speak to you because they want to invest or they're interested to know more. And most of them are up early and most of them start work before nine and most of them are still working after 5.30 and are around at lunchtime. So if an investor is so inflexible that they cannot have a call with me, they clearly aren't that interested and I don't want to talk to them because it's a waste of my time. So that's kind of how I do it. I've got a pipeline of 120 investors who have invested in similar tech, who have invested in our potential exits. So companies we would be looking to exit to. Um, And it's just, it's a numbers game. Just get out there. And then obviously my use of LinkedIn and my videos on LinkedIn works well for me. But, you know, I may not be able to do it. It may not be achievable. But if you don't do anything, 
and you don't try, it'll never happen anyway. We should do a video together. Oh, yes. Both in mental health. Yes. Definitely. We should. Um, I think I say this every single episode. We've done an hour and two minutes. <gasps> no. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, you are phenomenal. Thank you. You are enough. I am enough, but you are enough. Um, one of the best conversations I've had in a long time. Oh, cool. Thank yeah. you so much. And I think we clicked immediately. Um, so I'm excited to see where our own personal relationship goes. Yeah. But you're, you're just phenomenal. Oh, thank you. That's very kind. So thank you for being vulnerable, for sharing your story. I appreciate there's going to be a lot of people who don't suffer with bipolar and they haven't been to the dark depths of where you've been. However, what I think a lot of people resonate with is the grit and the determination that you've got from somewhere, even given the privilege. I dispute it, but you have this amazing ability to um, be very captivating thank you so you're going to be fine with your raise <laughs> thank you <laughs> yeah 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 well, and you've I'm got a great idea i'm actually going to go and buy your app oh um, thank you yeah. Yeah. i'll give it a go myself um Please so thank a, you thank you so much yeah that's it happy days happy days happy bang days. on <laughs>